Hello, and welcome to this, the 14th episode of All You Need to Know About European History. We deal in this episode with succession wars and the Enlightenment. The 18th century was the century of the Enlightenment. Those decades of intellectual revolution and civilizational advance which transformed Europeans' ideas of society and of government, and provided the ideological fuel for the American, and a good deal less happily, French revolutions. Not that this was remotely predictable as the century opened. As we noted at the end of the last episode, two major peace treaties had just been concluded, one ending the Nine Years' War between France and the Grand Alliance of everyone else, and a second formalising the success of the Holy Roman Empire in recovering much of Southeast Europe from the Ottoman Turks. But all eyes now turned to Madrid, where Spain's Habsburg monarch Charles II was manifestly sick unto death, with no male heir to succeed him. The great peace settlement of Westphalia half a century earlier had trained the chancelleries of Europe in balance of power thinking, Statesmen were now keener than ever to try to ensure that rivals remained under friendly or, better still, subservient management, so the early decades of the new century would be choreographed as a clutch of wars of succession. The first over who should succeed to the Spanish throne when Charles succumbed, followed by two further pan-European struggles over the occupancy of the Polish and then of the Austrian thrones. So in this episode, we shall cover that ground first, before broaching the Enlightenment. In an earlier episode, we touched on the price the Habsburgs paid for generations of inbreeding, a hereditary deformation of the jaw. This reached its nadir in the person of King Charles II of Spain, whose death in 1700 was long foreseen and eagerly awaited across Europe. Spain had exsanguinated itself with its wars against Europe's Protestants, but it still held on to the Spanish Netherlands, to Naples, Sicily and Milan, and a vast overseas empire in the Americas and Philippines. So few European capitals were uninterested in its fate. For Louis XIV, the end of the Spanish dynasty looked like a golden chance to break the historic grip of the Madrid-Vienna axis, For the Emperor Leopold, the loss of a friendly regime in Spain seemed sure to make resistance to Louis' expansionism ever harder. Now, the French king and Habsburg emperor had each married a sister of the moribund Charles, and Spain had no hang-ups over succession through the female line. So Paris and Vienna were each able to put forward a plausible candidate for the vacant throne, in the persons of Louis XIV's grandson, Philip of Anjou, and Emperor Leopold's second son, another Charles, the first son, of course, being earmarked as next emperor. Charles left a will opting for the Frenchman, in which the Grand Alliance of Austrians, English and Dutch, who had battled against Louis XIV's expansionism in the last century, naturally refused to accept. The Allies brought Prussia on side too, by agreeing to upgrade the Duke's status to king. War ensued, with, a sign of the times, the Duke of Bavaria throwing in his lot with Louis. A French Bavarian army was well on its way to Vienna in 1704, when the English general, John Churchill, 
blocked and crushed them near Blenheim in southern Germany. Hence the name of the massive palace near Oxford in England which Churchill built with the bounty of a grateful nation, and where his even more distinguished descendant Winston was born. A decade of further campaigning produced no decisive outcome until war weariness set in. With the worst of the Little Ice Age, all those frost fairs and broiled peasants larking around on the ice, devastating northern European agriculture, exchequers everywhere were empty. So the diplomats stepped in and, as at Westphalia, negotiated a suite of treaties, principally the Treaty of Utrecht, in 1713. On the face of it, France won. Philip of Anjou was confirmed on the Spanish throne, where his Bourbon successors sit to this day. But it was a much-diminished Spain, shorn of the Spanish Netherlands, of Naples, Milan and Sardinia, all ceded to Austria, and of Sicily, which went to Savoy. And the new Paris-Madrid axis never amounted to much, as Spain's decline continued and Louis XV, succeeding his great-grandfather at the age of five in 1715 and settling in for nearly 60 years on the French throne, showed little trace of Catorze's drive and ambition. In reality, the British came out best. And British is what Mims now call them after the Act of Union in 1707 merged England and Scotland as one new state, Great Britain. France agreed to cut off support for the Jacobins, uh, those Catholic descendants of the ousted James II of England, and accept the succession of George, Protestant elector of Hanover, to the English throne in 1714. Not but what there would still be a dangerous rebellion led by James's son, which King George crushed in 1715. The British retained Gibraltar under Utrecht and Menorca, taken from the Spanish in the war, but their principal gains were commercial. Newfoundland and Nova Scotia, ceded to them by the French, were chilly desolations, but brought with them control of the North Atlantic cod fisheries. And, most valuable of all, Britain wrested from Spain the Asiento, the monopoly on the supply of slaves to the Spanish-American colonies. The transatlantic slave trade was perhaps the darkest stain on this century of enlightenment, and we shall have more to say on that later on. But in geopolitical terms, the outcome of the War of Spanish Succession marked the start of 200 years of British maritime, commercial and financial dominance. Meanwhile, Bavaria, newly allied with France, Prussia, elevated to kingdom, and Hanover, with their elector now on the British throne as well, were not the only German principalities to be feeling their oats. The elector of Saxony was Augustus the Strong. This was no mere metaphor. He wooed his countless mistresses with his party trick of bending horseshoes with his bare hands and routinely triumphed at his own fox-tossing contests. I'm afraid that's not a metaphor either. Uh, badgers, hares and wildcats too, reportedly. Anyway, this Augustus got himself elected to the vacant Polish-Lithuanian throne in 1697. That same year, the 15-year-old Charles XII succeeded to the Swedish crown. A splendid opportunity, or so it seemed to Augustus, to Denmark and Norway, to Peter the Great in Moscow, to strip Sweden of its Baltic Empire. Cue 
the 20-year Great Northern War. But here you must indulge a brief digression on Peter, who ruled from 1682 to 1725. He was the grandson of Tsar Michael, who had put an end to the time of troubles by establishing the Romanov dynasty, which would last until 1917. Peter had inherited Russian domains which now stretched clear to the Pacific. But socially and economically, the place remained more medieval than modern, and fearful of both its powerful European neighbours to the west and the Ottoman Empire to the south. Peter determined to complete a makeover and modernization, and the creation of a powerful Russian marine with access to the Baltic and Black Seas. As a first step, he took Azov on the Black Sea from the Ottomans, and then set off on an 18-month learning tour of Europe, supposedly incognito, though since he stood over two metres tall and took a substantial retinue, not many were fooled. His longest stay was in the Netherlands, where he spent months in the world's then-largest shipyard, learned how to pull teeth and capture butterflies, tried but failed to extract the secret of his new microscope lens from Antony van Leeuwenhoek, and generally indulged an insatiable curiosity. His tour then took in England and the main East European courts. Back in Russia, the first priority was the plan, with Prussia and Poland, to dismember the Swedish Empire and secure a Russian outlet on the Baltic. Unfortunately for the three allies, young Charles, the new Swedish king, turned out to be a military genius. Knocking out the Danes and Poles, and replacing Augustus with his own Polish king, he drove deep into Russia. But defeat at the Battle of Poltava in 1709 was the turning point. Augustus got his throne back, Russia took Riga, and in 1714 occupied Finland. After Poltava, Charles sought refuge in Constantinople. In due course, returning to the fray after an epic 15-day ride across Europe, from Black Sea to Baltic. Alas, to no avail. Charles died in battle in 1718. Peace negotiations ensued, confirming the dismemberment of Sweden's empire, and Sweden converted itself into a constitutional monarchy on the British model. Peter the Great built himself a new capital on the Baltic, at St Petersburg. The next in the succession of succession wars was triggered by Augustus's death in 1733. Elective monarchy or not, he had intended the Polish throne for his son. France decided to promote an alternative. Russia and Austria backed the young Augustus and soon prevailed. But France, with the Spanish Bourbons tagging along, took the opportunity to strike against the Habsburgs, who were disappointed in their hope of British support. The end of hostilities in 1735 led to France's acquisition of Lorraine, while Spain got Naples and Sicily back. Austria soon had other worries. The Emperor Charles VI, that same Charles who had in earlier times lucked out as Habsburg candidate for the Spanish throne, was ageing and had no male heir. France and the rising German powers scented opportunity the War of Austrian Succession on Charles's death in 1740. No one much cared about his daughter Maria Theresa succeeding him in the hereditary Habsburg domains, that's Bohemia, Hungary, Croatia, the Austrian Netherlands, Milan, and of course Austria. The issue was the imperial throne, where only a male emperor was acceptable. No problem, the Habsburgs argued, Maria Theresa's husband, 
Francis Stephen, Duke of Lorraine, was the obvious candidate. But not as obvious, contended the Elector of Bavaria, as himself, especially given the support of his new French allies. A classic Austria-France confrontation loomed, leaving Prussia and Saxony-Poland wondering what might be in this for them. The answer to that question was demonstrated by the young Prussian king, with his lightning seizure of Austrian Silesia. Frederick the Great had only just inherited his increasingly militarised but still fragmented domain from a brutal father who, correctly suspecting his son of both homosexual and cultural tendencies, had subjected him to a rigorously militarised upbringing. The product was a man of wide intellectual interests. He befriended Voltaire and Bach, played the flute and the new pianoforte and founded the Berlin Academy of Arts, who also showed himself the most ruthless and effective general of the age. Diplomacy without arms, he observed, is like music without instruments. Silesia, a rich province of Bohemia along the upper Oder Valley, adjacent to Poland and close to both Saxony and Frederick's own heartland of Brandenburg, lay at the strategic centre of Eastern Europe, and was poorly garrisoned by an ill-organised Austrian army recently mauled by the Turks. Within weeks, Frederick had bagged it, and announced his presence on the European scene. The resultant war lasted eight years, spread across Central and Eastern Europe, and the Low Countries in Italy, saw the Bavarian elected emperor in 1742, the first non-Habsburg for 300 years, only to give up the imperial throne when an Austrian army occupied his homeland, saw the natural order restored when Marie Theresa's husband was elected in his stead in 1745, included various sideshows, such as Bonnie Prince Charlie's French-inspired Jacobite rising in Scotland in 1745, and culminated in 1748 in a peace which confirmed Prussia in possession of Silesia, but otherwise largely restored the status quo ante. Apart from Frederick, Marie Theresa had perhaps most reason to be satisfied with this outcome, despite the loss of Silesia. She was confirmed in the Austrian succession, and though it was her husband who occupied the imperial throne, and then their son, Emperor Joseph II, after 1765, both husband and son deferred to her wishes. She and Stephen Francis had, it seems, a love match, producing 16 children, including the ill-fated Marie Antoinette. Between bouts of procreation, Marie Theresa saw through far-reaching reforms of the Austrian state and military. For there was a strong sense of impermanence and unfinished business about the peace settlement. The tectonic plates of European power politics were clearly shifting, and not much foresight was required to anticipate a new geopolitical earthquake which would duly erupt as the Seven Years' War in the middle of the century. Well, this catalogue of wars in the first half of the century seemed to suggest that Europe's 18th century was largely a continuation of the dismal 17th. But that would be to ignore a profound shift in the intellectual climate of the time. Ruthless geopolitics would remain central to the European story. But the horrors of the wars of religion had cured Europeans of their fatal enthusiasm for faith-based mutual slaughter.
Warfare since Westphalia had assumed a more professional aspect between regular armies, bolstered, of course, by mercenaries, who incurred most of the casualties, with civilian populations largely spared the massacres and atrocities of previous times. And, at the same time, the scientific revolution had got European elites thinking about the material world, but also about human society, with a wholly new freedom. The archetypal man of this enlightenment was, of course, the French writer Voltaire, born in 1694 and died in 1778. His features are familiar from numerous paintings and statues, that wry, intelligent face with its perpetual half-smile, revealing its owner's combination of thoroughgoing scepticism and passionate commitment to the ideals of justice and religious toleration. His output was prodigious novels, essays, histories and more than 50 plays, as well as a vast correspondence. The France of Louis XV could never quite decide whether to treat him as a literary national treasure or as a subversive radical. So two early spells in prison were followed by a couple of years of exile in London in his early thirties. Here he encountered an intoxicating atmosphere of intellectual and cultural freedom. Britain was now an established constitutional monarchy, Satirists like Alexander Pope and Jonathan Swift took full advantage of the new licence to mock and criticise. The theatre and the newly fashionable coffee houses, where the proliferating and largely uncensored news sheets were avidly absorbed, were incubators of new political and intellectual ideas. Although confined to a relatively small elite, it was all a bit like the impact of the social media revolution in our own era. The scientific revolution had prepared the ground. Its key tenets, take nothing on trust, calculate, test and verify, had culminated in Newton's comprehensive and compelling account of the mechanical operation of the physical universe. Human intellectual energy and curiosity needed new fields of inquiry and found them by refocusing inwards on the operations of man's own intellect and of human society. Descartes had, of course, kicked this off with his indulgence of scientific scepticism to the point that he doubted the evidence of his senses and concluded that the only thing of which he could be absolutely certain was that he was cudgelling his brains and therefore to that extent existed. Cogito ergo sum. Philosophy in its modern sense, heretofore the term had embraced the pursuit of all non-religious knowledge, was becoming a thing. And one of its early giants was the Englishman John Locke, 1632-1704, a product of Oxford and the Royal Society, whose writings on human understanding, government, toleration and education in effect set the 18th century philosophical agenda. In a bit I shall try to say something more about what Europe's leading intellects made of this agenda in the coming decades. Here it is enough to note that new avenues of thought inspired by Locke were a further important element in the stimulation that worked on Voltaire in his time in London. One should also add that, before we get too excited about Locke's level of enlightenment, it must be noted that he was a major investor in the slave-trading Royal Africa Company and helped the Lord's proprietors of the new American colony of Carolina, i.e. the investors to whom King Charles II had granted a royal charter, to draft a deeply illiberal constitution. Back in Paris, 
Voltaire's reputation continued to grow along with his literary production, despite, or perhaps because of, continuing tensions with royal and church authorities. Frederick the Great, while still Crown Prince of Prussia, initiated a correspondence and persuaded him to spend two years at the Prussian court before they fell out. Soon Voltaire was keeping his head down in the city-state of Geneva, until the Calvinist city fathers decided they were no happier with his religious views, God yes, organised religion no, than the Catholic Church in France, and expelled him. In 1778 he hunkered down at Ferney in southeast France, so he could escape to Switzerland if his continued writing, correspondence, or campaigning against miscarriages of justice brought the French authorities down on him again. At 83, he judged a return to Paris safe. He was received with wild acclaim, and shortly afterwards died. The Voltaire story epitomises, as of course it helped to mould, contemporary European culture. In the first place, he was French, and whatever excitements might be happening in London, in the early years of the 18th century, nowhere else in Europe could match the power or influence of Louis XIV's France. The effulgence of the Sun King's Versailles dazzled Europe. Peter the Great's project to modernise and Europeanise Russia was epitomised by his move of his capital from Moscow to St. Petersburg, where French was adopted as the court language and western dressed and shaven chins were demanded. Boyars, the Russian nobles, who could not live without their beards, had to pay a swinging fine in lieu of shaving. The great Peterhof Palace was conceived in rivalry of Versailles, and a French architect and a French landscape gardener were brought in to work on the layout of palace and city. Mid-century, Frederick the Great and Maria Theresa both felt the urge to emulate Versailles with their own summer palaces, Sanssouci and Schönbrunn, respectively. Whilst Frederick prescribed French as the language for his Academy of Arts rather than barbarous German. French aesthetic influence was also dominant throughout the century, as the grand architectural style of Louis XIV gave way to Rococo. White and light and hyper-ornamented, with all those seashells and gilded putty, which rapidly pervaded the whole continent. The intellectual climate in Paris might be more politically inhibited than in London, but it was just as intense. The accumulation and dissemination of knowledge was a passion, epitomised by the great project masterminded by Diderot to produce the world's first encyclopaedia. And whilst the French aristocracy remained cooped up in Versailles, the salon culture flourished in Paris, with society hostesses presiding over privileged gatherings for intelligent conversation, competing to attract the leading intellectuals of the day. For this was the age of the intellectual celebrity, who would be lionised across Europe. Like Renaissance artists, leading philosophers would be lured from court to court. And, like rock stars, it was all the better if they indulged in outrageous behaviour. Jean-Jacques Rousseau fell out of his box at the opera in London, conducted a celebrity feud with Voltaire, and managed to die of a stroke after being knocked down by a Great Dane. The English savant, Dr Johnson, had, in his companion and biographer James Boswell, his very own publicist. Was or not, moneyed Europeans had never travelled more widely, 
This was the age of the Grand Tour, when wealthy young northerners fell in love with the Mediterranean and its antiquities. The German literary Wunderkind Johann von Goethe, novelist, playwright and poet, but also statesman and scientist, published his first major scientific work on the metamorphosis of plants after touring Italy in 1788. Nor had moneyed Europeans ever competed more enthusiastically for cultural status. Augustus the Strong filled his sumptuous palace in Dresden with Chinese porcelain. No fox-tossing in the galleries, one assumes, and at one point handed over a regiment of dragoons to the King of Prussia in a trade for the latter's collection of Chinese vases. When a failed alchemist he happened to have in protective custody, discovered the secret ingredient of porcelain, Kaolin. He, that's Augustus, established the Meissen works, and the race was on across Europe to try to produce wares of comparable quality. So what? The question can now be no longer avoided. Were all these treasured philosophers actually thinking, talking, writing and corresponding about? What was the Enlightenment? The term does not appear in English until the next century, but the German philosopher Immanuel Kant, writing in 1784, argued that the Avklarung was essentially about freeing humanity from ignorance and superstition through the exercise of reason. So we are talking about an extension of the principles of the scientific revolution. No easy assumptions, no deference to received authority, a sceptical demand for proof and evidence but with a different focus. What principally absorbed Enlightenment philosophers was not just the subject matter of such diligent inquiry, but also the inquiry itself, the nature and validity of the internal processes by which we acquire knowledge. How do we know what we know? And how do we know that we know it? I had better confess at the outset, I, I am rather out of sympathy with this sort of navel-gazing. My exposure to philosophy at university was not a success. My memory, no doubt untrustworthy, of Oxford philosophy of half a century ago was that it had developed an even more abstruse line of inquiry, arguing that debates about reason and perception inevitably missed the point because of a failure to understand that the important thing was the language in which they were conducted. What is reality? Well, if you're talking about a real man, it means drinks beer and owns a chainsaw, whereas if you are puzzling about whether this is a real rabbit, you might mean, is it or is it not stuffed? Interesting, no doubt, but hardly the key to the human condition. So what follows is obviously superficial, certainly prejudiced, and probably error-strewn. If you want a, a proper introduction to the subject, try Sophie's World, your Stone Garda's uh, 1990s bestseller. But as I understand it, the relative roles of reason and perception were the big preoccupation. Rationalists, Descartes, the Dutch lens grinder Spinoza, the German Leibniz, emphasised the former. There was innate stuff in the human mind, a bit like Plato's concept that you would not be able to recognise a horse unless you first had some internal idea of what such an animal was. Empiricists, mainly Britons, Locke, Barclay, Hume, thought that reason needed the raw material provided by the senses to work on. And they quoted Aristotle, there is nothing in the mind that was not first in the senses. Not that sensation was to be taken on trust, 
Barclay wondered how one could know that the tree in the quad was still there when we were not looking at it, and, as a good bishop, concluded that all external reality was actually a sort of Truman show laid on by God. Most empiricists, though, accepted the existence of material out there and interested themselves in such issues as the differences in the various perceived qualities it possessed. Volume and mass, for example, stuff you could measure, seemed more dependable than, say, taste and smell. Kant attempted a complicated fusion of the two approaches or emphases, involving the interaction of perception and reason. Some intuitions, notably the existence of God, he classified as matters of faith rather than reason. 18th century philosophers were a mixed bag of conventional believers, miscellaneous deists, agnostics and atheists. Sadly, it seems that Voltaire's deathbed response to the priest urging him to renounce the devil, this is no time to be making enemies, was a later fiction. But Kant, like most of his peers, was much preoccupied, and in my view more productively, with how to provide a, a philosophical basis for morality. That is, how to establish the rightness and rationality of ethical behaviour without simply invoking the risk of hellfire in the hereafter. His famous categorical imperative, act only according to that maxim, whereby you can, at the same time, will that it should become a universal law, is a good formula, but maybe not a huge advance on the Bibles, do unto others. Happily, philosophers were also exercising their brains in the rather more practical field of political philosophy, with radical new ideas about social contracts, between governed and governors, and human rights. But that is a whole new theme, and for another episode. <laughs>